are back from Change to Change. I am Bruce Riley, aka DJ Bruja, in the house with dangerous Devin Davis on the controls. And we have none other than Britt Gandalfi, who is hey. running for Senate. How you doing, Britt? I'm I can't campaign is my okay. <laughs> mom joke. I'm well, good. And we got a special guest around here somewhere. We got a little Sophia rocking. My, my daughter is over here uh-huh. slipping me notes well, for the the right thing to say. <laughs> cool. We might get some cameos. Um, so, Britt, here we are. We are um, very close to the primary election on Saturday, and we've already had a whole bunch of early voting. There are three candidates in your race, correct? There's yes. two Democrats and one Republican. Yes. Beth Mizell, who is the incumbent. Yes. And I just want to get this out of the way I you know I read this article the other day and it was about a lot of like families that are in office fathers and sons and all this kind of thing are you are you not related to Gandalf the wizard yes yeah no only um in my dreams am I related to Gandalf and no relation to James Gandolfini although I do like to tell people that's my uncle but he's not he's really not (laughs) well I feel like Gandalf would really help the cause I do let people know that that's kind of how you pronounce my name okay well, Wizard S, um, how about tell us a little about yourself and, and why you chose to run, just to get us started. Well, I chose to run because I realized that with every single problem that our state has, from pollution to mass incarceration to our school systems falling apart to low wages and poverty, that our legislature spends a ridiculous amount of time on culture war DC Mm -hmm. politics. It's almost as if there's an army of lobbyists in Baton Rouge who are like, how many people can we um, incite with rage that's worthless? Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a lot of legislation and a lot of bills that is just here to divide and stoke the fires of culture wars. And we don't have a livable wage. We don't have early child care programs that support the entire state. Our infrastructure is crumbling. You have to have a car to survive here. There's no pedestrian access. There's so many practical things that I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, you should be able to list 15 things that we all need. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that you should be dedicating your time to. Mm -hmm. And the woman that I'm running against was monumental in the effort to criminalize abortion care services. Mm -hmm. So I made my decision to run in response to the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision that overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, which made the ability to access abortion a constitutional right. Mm-hmm. So now it's up to the states to decide. And Louisiana had decided that it's totally fine to incarcerate a doctor for up to 15 years um, for providing abortion care services. And that was kind of the last thing that made me mad enough to put myself and my life on mm-hmm. blast. I don't come from politicians. I don't come from a legal family. Um, but you did get a law degree. I did. Nice. I did. Congrats. I used to work at Bogalusa High School um, in Washington Parish. And my joke is that uh, it made me want to sue somebody. <laughs> you know, you go to school out there uh-huh. every day and you see the air that these students have to breathe and you see the pollution and mm-hmm. you see what, what's happening to the environment and how it results in people dying. And I just I realized my goals would require me to level up and, and get my, my lawyer badge. But I still have to take the bar exam. So okay. I'm not a lawyer yet, but 
I do have the debt to prove that I did that. Okay. Well, you can <laughs> always play one on TV. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I never took the bar, but, you know, I'm doing a lot of legal work in, in the realm. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to use one's legal education. And, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought up the Vogelusa. Um, we were chatting a little bit earlier, you know, so Vogelusa has the highest rate of incarceration in the state of Louisiana. It's not New Orleans. It's not Shreveport. It's not Baton Rouge. Vogelusa, which also has a much higher poverty rate than the rest of the state, um, and if I'm correct, it's like it's about a like about a half black, half white kind of space. History of uh, challenges behind that paper mill, uh, labor it challenges. Local, it's not locally you know? owned anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's it doesn't employ thousands of people anymore. About four hundred fifty, I think I read something like that. Yeah, so it's gone down since I worked there. About four years ago, it was like six hundred. Yeah. Um, so so let's talk a little about public safety because I know that like people are concerned about public safety. People also watch the national news and let's say the the local news, which shows them maybe what's happening, you know, in New Orleans perhaps. But like, you know, there's there's towns across your district. Let's talk about your district, and people are are you know dealing with crime and punishment. And rehabilitation and reentry, um, and the struggles that lead to that. What are some of the things that, from a state legislator perspective, you know, for your district around public safety, how to reduce public safety? What are your thoughts on that? A lot. This is, okay. this is a big old can of worms. I mean, people talk about crime and they'll immediately respond with, you know, we've got to be tough on crime. And they respond with a very, like, we must incarcerate. But that doesn't address the problem. You know, I mean, removing someone who's done something violent in the community from the community is a response to a problem. It does not stop the problem. I feel that crime is a byproduct of poverty and a byproduct of hopelessness. Um when you look at what's available for a young person growing up in Bogalusa to do, what's a, where, where can they work? Where can they find a future for themselves? You know, it's a pretty hopeless prospect. We also have a, an education system that I would describe as inhumane and hostile to the human spirit. The amount of stress and anxiety that the everyday child goes through in our public school system is not going to lead to long-term success. They are basically in what I'd like to call test prep mills. You know, mm -hmm. our schools are completely under the gun of our state board and the federal government to pass standardized tests at the end of every year. And the entire classroom and curriculum has followed this one goal of making sure these children pass these tests. It creates a toxic work environment mm. for our kids where they're literally eight hours a day, 45 minute increments of test prep with a 10 to 20 minute break. You know, if you work in an auto you know, factory, you have better working conditions than a third grader. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about crime as a byproduct of poverty, a byproduct of hopelessness, and a byproduct of mental health, people will say, well, you know, it all starts in the home. Well, I don't care where it starts. The issue is that most young people are going to go through the public school system. Mm -hmm. So we're not using our public school system as a place to give people the resources they need to thrive, to self-actualize, to pursue a life of dignity. We're treating it as this test prep game. Mm 
mm-hmm. where if you don't pass the tests, you're lost and hopeless. And then people will say, well, we need vocational schools and training schools. Well, yeah, sure. All that would be great. But we need to address what is the actual goal of the classroom? Is it to pass the LEAP test? Mm-hmm. Or is it to create a learning and education environment and community that a child can be excited to show up to every day? Mm-hmm. We're not focused on the environment. We're focused on this outcome. And the outcome is literally like the lowest metric that we could be aiming for. Mm-hmm. And I firmly believe that there are ways that we can produce, you know, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, compassion, creativity, collaboration through the classroom. You know, there is a morality that no matter what your religion is, the school can be a conduit for nurturing these attributes. We see it in other countries where they have it clearly articulated. We want our children to be compassionate. We want our children to be kind. And there seems to be a war against bringing this conversation into education. Like we we see what's happening across the country, people fighting against the quote woke agenda. Yeah. It's like, what's the opposite of being woke asleep? I don't know. And people are so concerned about the specifics of just a couple of like learning points, right? Mm -hmm. Like sexuality, um, the history of racism or slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all these other things, but they're going to hone in on that. It's funny listening to you talk about, um, you know, like prisons, I'm sorry, schools being so like high stress and toxic because you sound just like my daughter who's in a freshman in high school um, in the way that she's been talking about schools and prisons being like very similar, you know, since since she was like third grade or something. Um, and she's given me the, you know, a lot of the firsthand experiences that helped me as a parent. I'm sure you as a parent you start to understand, like, okay, here's some things we need to address that when we're not parents, we may not be thinking about so much. We might as school teachers, right? We might as aunties or uncles. Um, you've got about 25,000 youth in your district, um, and which is a lot of kids. Yeah. And I think to some people, maybe the idea is like, well, if 5,000 make it, that's fine. What about the other 20,000? And we're just going to build jails and prisons for them or just try to shoo them away? When we run the schools like jails, the children will be more likely to behave like criminals. Mm. I mean, I got the opportunity to teach at a private school in Atlanta that was project-based. The kids were able to wear whatever clothing they wanted. Freedom of expression was really valued. The students had a nice long break in the middle of the day. They had about four subjects a day, did a nice block schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a very low-stress environment, Mm -hmm. but the academic... Um, metrics were through the roof, you know, because these children are in a working environment where they are, their independence is nurtured, Mm -hmm. their collaboration between other students is nurtured. Our students in the public system, it's very like, don't collaborate. This is your assignment, your test. We don't work together, but that's not what employers want. Employers want people who are able to teamwork and be able to ask for help, Mm -hmm. you know, and as opposed to creating a collaborative environment, it's a competition-based environment from kindergarten. You know, you have the kids on the green, the kids on the orange, the kids on the red, the little clippy things. We teach children from a very young age that there will be some kids who will make it and there will be some kids who do not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't y'all don't come after me with this whole everybody gets a participation trophy, but there is something toxic about publicly humiliating children for not being perfectly compliant yeah. because we all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, we all 
we all struggle in our own process, but the the high stakes environment of the American classroom, it's detrimental to their development. Yeah. And, I, you know, the way I, I've seen it a lot is, you know, we're in these like late stages of capitalism where, you know, the manufacturing era, you know, has gone into robotics and algorithms and such. And so when I think of conservatism and sort of traditional values and family values, you know, this idea that you could be 17 years old, know that you're going to work at this, say, factory, you're going to raise a family, you're going to coach at this little league or whatever. And there's a level of like safety in that. Mm -hmm. And people felt good about that. But then you manufacturing goes and you're left with, say, like Walmart or, or prison jobs to watch the other people that didn't make it. And so we're paying half the working class to, to lock up the other half of the working class. Obviously, it's not a sustainable solution. And as automation further kicks people out of jobs, we need some like innovative, smart people to talk about more than just banning books. Yeah. Well, if only there was just some crop that we could grow that would create a whole new industry down here. Oh, yeah. yeah. If only there was some plant medicine that could be produced in the state of Louisiana that people have been incarcerated for decades. Yeah, for we have a great medicine. growing season here. Clearly, yeah. we've grown crops before. I mean, bananas, oranges, or marijuana. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, we can't talk about mass incarceration in Louisiana without talking about the war on drugs and how many people are sitting in prison mm -hmm. for being nonviolent drug offenders. Mm -hmm. I mean, I take great issue with the state of Louisiana all of a sudden being like, well, I think marijuana is a medicine now. Let's have everybody go get a prescription for it. And it's like, sir, there are people rotting in jail for distributing this quote medicine, this mm -hmm. plant, you know, and the hypocrisy of us all of a sudden um, making it okay. Yeah. You and know, legitimizing some, it. Yeah. And people of, let's say the, the previously like, um, incarcerate our class then getting like licenses to grow which has happened across the country at times like people who previously were for prohibition are now profiting off of it and then the people that were the ones being punished for it are not able to to participate in the profiting of it and so it just makes it even more perverse um are there any lobbyists who will help me write a 40 acres in a bag of seeds reparations bill for i'll write it for you and i'm not a lobbyist you know? okay perfect <laughs> i was on the perfect. i was on <laughs> the uh the marijuana uh task force that that um that was created a few years ago and you know my my role was like kind of literally to read the positions of various other agencies or experts who are maybe reiterating old bad science um, or maybe not even like including all the right things. Like for instance, in Colorado, what, what they were able to, to show was, and elsewhere too, but they had a really good strong study about how the money that they were making of the tax revenue, they were also putting towards public education. Yeah. And they could now, because it was honest and open, yeah. they could talk about stuff that they, was, they were unable to talk about before. Like, here's how to protect yourself. Here's how to use responsibly. Here's how not to smoke and drive and things like that. And that's something that would also be perpetuated by having a, 
a legalized situation in tax revenue. This issue is extremely close to my heart. My grandfather on my father's side, my dad's dad, when my grandmother was pregnant with my dad, worked for what I like to call the Schwegman's Mafia. We don't know much. He's passed now. <laughs> but he was arrested for dealing some joints to an undercover agent. Um, and because my grandfather was involved with an organized group and because my grandfather had my complexion, he spent about three or four years um, in jail. Mm -hmm. And I just know in my heart that if my grandfather was African-American, I would not have any uncles. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I know in my heart that my grandmother giving birth to my father without her partner there supporting her and helping her, you know, caused a lot of stress and a lot of trauma and a lot of pain in our family. And I know in my heart that my grandfather was selling drugs because he wanted to be a good parent mm. and that's hard for people to fathom and that's hard for people to understand. But if you have ever wondered how you are going to pay your bills or how you're going to get by, if you've never wondered that, then you can't fathom why you might distribute something that's illegal. And the other thing is that when we look at prohibition in America, you know, there was a time when we were like, you can't have a martini. You know, martinis, a, mar, a martini was a crime. Yeah. But when we ended prohibition, everyone that was a crime boss and a criminal and doing moonshine and having speakeasies, those people immediately stepped into the legitimate role of being a business owner. Mm -hmm. But we're not seeing that happen with marijuana. And I feel it's because the distribution of marijuana has been mostly a burden taken up by you know people of color in this country and it's been used as a, a way to incarcerate people mm -hmm. of color and to specifically racially oppress people and i say that you know it's the the burden of distributing marijuana is because like it's a plant medicine mm -hmm. you can't deny that it's a plant medicine right. our state has said that it is a medicine for people who have ptsd anxiety cancer crohn's disease mm -hmm. You know, it's certainly less harmful than the martini we were criminalizing. Yeah. And it's like basically universally accepted. Like no one really disputes that anymore. But how many people y'all tell me yeah. are still in a cage away the, from their families, yeah. away from their communities, not able to provide, you know, when you remove someone who I'm sorry to say, but is an entrepreneur, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, if you're trying to provide for your family and you're, you know, eat even if you're doing it in a way under the current regime of distributing marijuana, if it's illegal, you know, there's a, there's a drive in you to provide. It was my first entrepreneurial endeavor when I was a kid and it was a drive to survive. Yeah. I didn't have kids or whatever, but I also didn't have parents and, you know, and I didn't have a, a safe place to call my own. And so it would be like ridiculous for somebody who didn't know my situation to say, well, where are the parents or it all starts in the home or, that ship sailed. It's gone. Now we're talking about me by myself, right? Like, and so, you know, they'll pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, whatever. And there's a lot of people, you know, that kind of went through my shoes. And the funny thing is when I went to the prison, that's where I found everybody like me. And we were all in one place. We all could kind of commiserate in a sense of like, wow, like that was like your childhood or this was my childhood. And whether we were white, black, Asian, Latino, like, you know, there are all these different... Um, overlaps and so much of it came down to like these unstable scenarios for some of us it was like intergenerational incarceration intergenerational 
mental health problems, um, poverty, intergenerational poverty. And just like you're saying, like so much of it comes out of that. So to address that, we have to not go at the end of the game with the prisons and, and all that, like go at the front of the game. Yeah. And we have to be thinking about our kids and what kind of world we're building for them. Um, I was happy to see a poll that showed amongst Democrats and Republicans after this session that they spent too much time on these woke issues. It doesn't do anything for anyone. I said it at a forum in Washington Parish, you know, bullying gay people didn't put any food on the table for anyone this last legislative session. It did not improve anyone's quality of life. It did not ensure affordable housing. It did not increase anyone's wages. It did not do anything other than make people feel religiously and morally superior to another demographic of people. And I'm sorry. Our legislative sessions are frying pans. They're 45 days, 60 day sessions, alternating every other year. You've got to get in, get things done. The fact that we're going into a veto override session over a problem that doesn't even exist or over the fact that our schools shouldn't acknowledge that gay people exist. It's like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) We're dying of cancer earlier than everyone else in this country, and we don't even have child care. I think we need to Mm reprioritize what's going on. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we suffer so intensely from the socioeconomic and environmental hellscape Mm -hmm. that is Louisiana, that for us to be arguing about the things that we know we're not going to agree. If someone thinks that someone's going to go to hell for being homosexual or gay... Nothing in the world is going to change that person's mind. Mm-hmm. But if you want to bully gay people, you should just go do that on Facebook. You can't use up the legislative session to bully gay people. And yeah. that is like the other big bone I have to pick with my opposition. It's just, I don't care how you feel, even if you're extremely conservative or far right, mm-hmm. you got to admit that that was a waste of time. And she, um, you know, it's we've tried to put several um, constitutional amendments on the ballot. One, which many people know, uh, was very successful: the ending the nine-amendment jury uh, situation. Thank you all for that. And you know, and, and it was funny at the beginning; like it polled at like thirty-three percent. We ended up getting sixty-four uh, percent, and I was like, "You're polling before we do the work," so I didn't care about polls. But people, you know, put a lot of stock in polls. But we can't afford polls here. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and we tried to do a ballot amendment to put term limits on the sheriffs uh, through Representative Mandy Landry. And the sheriffs all showed up and opposed it. Uh, and so that didn't make it on the ballot. But on this year's ballot, um, the incumbent, your, op- your opponent, Beth Mizell, was able to get um, uh, an issue to heighten the protections around religious freedom, which as someone who's been you know, working within the, the, the Constitution and the First Amendment and such for decades, I don't think religious freedom is in jeopardy. Uh, and I don't know that this this is going to do anything. But like you're saying, this took a lot of energy to get two-thirds of both houses to, to support this, both chambers, and the governor to sign it. And now the voters are going to be able to, to vote for or against it. Again, I don't think it does anything either way, but like you're saying, this is the energy that's going in. And she voted against raising the minimum wage to $10. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. And the other thing is, like, if you believe in religious liberty, then why the hell did you fight for in God we trust to be in every classroom? Are we not going to recognize the religious liberty of the children who may be coming from homes that are not Judeo-Christian? Mm-hmm. Do those kids not matter? Yeah. You know, and it's like you can't be putting in God we trust in every classroom and then run the classroom like a prison. Yeah. That's hypocrisy. You can't put in God we trust in the classroom and feed children garbage and make yeah. them work without a meaningful break, make them sit in chairs for eight hours a day when their bodies are meant to move and run and be active and have multiple breaks. Like our classrooms are inhumane. Mm-hmm. It's inhumane. And so the hypocrisy of, you know, being like, well, we trust in God. Well, God don't trust you. God don't trust you to run a nice classroom because, you know, the obsession, the absolute obsession with the metrics of these test scores creates the most insane work environment for teachers and for students. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. We are wasting so much time and we're sitting on so much lost income for our state in terms of looking at like the industrial tax exemption program that we have, it's like homeowners pay greater property tax percentages than mm-hmm. Exxon, than Shell, than Formosa, than, you know, ConocoPhillips. Yeah, like, most definitely. They, they, they pay, like the average homeowner in Louisiana pays a higher percentage of their income than these multi-billion dollar industries. Mm-hmm. And we want to talk about how we're poor, how we don't have the resources you know, to have these phenomenal schools or mm-hmm. to have these large scale infrastructure programs that would increase accessibility for people. Instead of figuring out how to get that money, mm-hmm. we're fighting over whether or not if there's another <laughs> lockdown, people are going to be able to go to church. Everyone was yeah. able to go to church. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting, you know, question. You know, because right now I was just I was reading a, a story where like a lot of people are, are moving to where they feel politically safe. So you might be a hyper Christian person and don't feel safe in a city that is is more diverse or vice versa. Like in Louisiana, you know, a lot of LGBTQ people are saying like this is not a good state for me to be in for all the reasons you just kind of evacuate. Yeah. And, and women who, you know, we both have daughters you know, we might be worried about the, the rights of women to choose. Uh, you know, if, right now they want to force you to have babies, even if you're 12 years old, and not get, you know, criminalize you if, you if you seek an alternative. So, but for us to get to a space where we can, like, live and let live, clearly, you know, we both clearly see a world where we can have these diversities of thought and religion and morals that doesn't step on anyone else. They need not be in competition. Right. But, so how do we reach people where it seems to be that their position is, you need to ascribe to my morals or get out? Um, we really need to get back to that mind your own business golden rule. You know, there are some things that are the government's business. You know, roads, schools, making sure, you know, these massive industries don't destroy our environment and take years off of our life public safety, the Mm -hmm. post office, you know, programs that support and help people's lives, things that make people, as Sean Wilson says, like healthier, Mm -hmm. safer, wealthier, wiser, you know, that's what the government's business is. Mm -hmm. Who you love, how you dress, what you call yourself, what medicines you take, what medical choices you make for you, Mm -hmm. whatever way you want to change your physical appearance, none of that is the government's business. Mm -hmm. 
And we need to really cast off all of the labels that we're using of conservative and liberal and Democrat and Republican because it, we are not going into the complexity mm-hmm. of it. Or maybe it's actually more simple than we want to admit, you know, and we're using these labels to keep us separated. It's like, what is that list of things we, can, we all need? Clean yeah. air, clean water, livable wage, housing, access to food, a community in which we can thrive a good place for our children to go to school, child care for people who do not have the luxury of staying home with their children because it takes two earners. Like, there's a list of things where I don't care what your morality is, what your religion is, you can agree. Mm-hmm. You know, you can agree texting and driving is bad. You know, we can agree that, you know, the death penalty is murder, but obviously we can't, you know, like... Right. But there's just so much focus on the divisiveness that... Yeah. Hold on, Sophie, would you turn down your bluey baby while we're podcasting, honey? Mom, that's I love it. No, but yeah. I you know that's why I hid it no. from you. Uh, no. I can only do I'm only doing it this style. Yeah, I mean I mean I think it's great. Or is it, are we picking up the bluey? No. We're on these, okay. these mics here. Perfect. Go for bluey. Perfect. No, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um but yeah, I, I mean, I fully agree with you. Like, when I hear labels and trigger words, I'm always trying to get someone to go beyond that, mm-hmm. right? Like, when you say conservatism, for instance, or liberal, like, no, no, explain to me more about what, why you're what, using that label. Like, what are the components of that label? And the irony is, I mean, what you were just describing about, like, small government and conservative values, like, this is usually where Republicans kind of, like, use those trigger words and try to get people to kind of shortcut the deep thinking to just be like, yes or no, to the mm-hmm. trigger words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with you. It would be great. If, I think I think if we can get there, we all can agree that the government should be doing less, more effectively. Yeah. And, you know, and, and rather than kind of drifting out into this sort of like control realm. Right. It's like how, who, who gets to make the decision about what happens to our bodies. I mean, and with the abortion issue and connecting it to poverty and connecting it to crime, if you don't get to decide when, if, and how it's a, it's a good time for you to become a parent, you have control over nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that choice is the last social safety net for a woman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the last thing that someone um, has to have control over their life because Having worked at a women's clinic, I have seen kind of four main reasons someone finds themselves there. It's either, I'm okay, I won't take that call. Um, It's either a medical emergency, either for the mother or for the pregnancy. It's either a tragedy, okay? So tragic circumstances surrounding, you know, the conception. So rape, incest, a very abusive relationship, or it is a... um, an age situation, either someone's very, very young or someone's thought that they were no longer capable of becoming pregnant. They did and they realized they can't spend the last years of their life, you know, being mm-hmm. a parent. Um, or it's socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. And it's that last one that the state or the government could really help out with. Yeah. You know, so my contention with people that self-profess to be pro-life, it's like, okay, I hear you. You want less women in the position where they are pregnant, whether it be unintended or intended, and unable. Mm -hmm. 
you know okay so what do we do to make it more possible for people to give birth because all the countries that have the lowest rates of abortion they have the highest rates of social service Mm -hmm. and they also don't have any restrictions on abortion they reduced their abortion numbers by reducing unintended pregnancy and providing social support for families so Mm -hmm. you have guaranteed early child care you have guaranteed universal health care you have the guarantee that you can go off into higher education and not take out a hundred thousand dollars in debt to advance your career pregnancy is such a like a high stakes situation yeah and for people like oh just, just put it up for adoption that to me is one of the most callous cruel and out of touch things any human being could say to another person because the other statistics surrounding abortion that i feel does not get enough attention is that a majority of women i'm say a third a solid third of women that have an elective abortion they already have children Mm -hmm. they're already moms yeah they're already moms and they're already struggling Mm -hmm. so for all the adoption people out there when you say oh well they don't need an abortion just go have an adoption you're telling that woman to go home and to tell her children i'm so sorry Mommy is so poor that she cannot care for another child, so I'm going to be pregnant, and I'm going to give birth, and I'm going to give your brother and sister away. Yeah. Do they realize the level of trauma? That's massive. That's massive, massive trauma. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this whole push for private adoption to just be the panacea and the solution for criminalizing abortion. It's like, are you farming children from poor women? Because the people that are going to be making that elective adoption decision, who would have may otherwise have chosen like an early elective abortion, it's socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. Guarantee you it's going to be a socioeconomic reason why that person is not going to be able to be a parent. No one reads a positive pregnancy test and wants to say, oh shit. Yeah. You know, that's not a good feeling for someone. So I don't like the whole language around choice because... No one chooses to be in that situation. It's something that happens. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we make choices, you know, that lead to that. Right. But no one's like, you know, I think I'd like to be pregnant and not be able to have it and then have to go spend $700 to $1,500 on an elective abortion procedure. That's going to be pretty emotionally exhausting. Take me out of work for about a week and I'll have to hide it from my family and friends out of fear, shame, and stigma. No one's like, yeah. that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So no one chooses it. it it's, it's like a necessary choice. Right. You know, so I, I'm for less abortion through mm-hmm. as many social programs as we can find to support women and families and children. But it has to be legal. Otherwise, we live in a state where the government is dictating the most personal decision a person can make. And that's to say, I'm going to create another one of me. I'm going to clone now. I'm going to make another human being. Like that's kind of the most powerful thing that a person can do is to procreate. It's one of the biggest responsibilities you can take on. It's not like adopting a dog or a goldfish. You know, Mm. you're creating a human being. It takes nine months So just to tell women, oh, well, if you can't, just go through that nine-month pregnancy and go through birth, which radically alters your body. And then give it away. And then just give it away. Yeah. It's a callousness that I can't even contemplate. But it's been such an an easily used political focal point to hide Mm -hmm. a completely different agenda. Because the people Mm -hmm. that are obsessed 
with criminalizing abortion just don't seem to be obsessed with the social programs that would prevent abortion yeah. in the first place. That was actually something I testified on, you know, with the, when the laws were, you know, were shifting with Dobbs and, and, um, you know, I was one of those kids that was in, in the womb on the, like my mom was pregnant while they were arguing Roe v. Wade and she decided to have an abortion because she was in one of those failed, struggling, impoverished, uh, abusive relationships and already had two kids. There's like no way is a third kid going to make anything any better. And, you know, the, the thing that that has always kind of bothered me about the sort of so-called right to life movement, and I know a lot of people are into it maybe for an altruistic reason, but the blinders that they put on to like to even those very children that they're that they're pushing for, and they pushed my mom to have that baby, but then forgot all about me and I'm sure millions of other babies. And when I then lived through poverty and homelessness, and as I already mentioned, like getting a hustle to try to survive, and then the chip on your shoulder, the trauma, the, the pain, all that, and then you get into a situation you know, where I was tested and you know, I acted violently. And then, you know, there's this cycle. I'm not putting it on the people that forced my mom to have a baby that I end up killing somebody. But we have to understand the cycle of like creating more poverty and creating more trauma and stress. And so I agree with you 100% that we need to change the circumstances of what women are dealing with and girls. Otherwise, we're going to just continue this cycle. And farming babies... What about, let's just imagine like thousands of children that were like forced to be born, that were given to other families. They just think it's going to be some feel good movie. Well, they're going to grow up and sort of wonder like where, how I came to be. And maybe it's not going to turn out so good either. Well, if you have people that are forced into parenthood um, and are struggling, and if they were given the opportunity of saying, okay, do you want to carry this pregnancy for nine months and give birth, or would you like to take this medication, go home and have a miscarriage? Mm-hmm. For everyone that would have turned in this direction, closing this door and putting them down this road, you have taken every amount of agency that they could have ever had over their life. What if they're pregnant by someone that's violent towards them? What if they're pregnant by someone that they don't see themselves being able to co-parent with? You know, that's what happened to me in college. I was a teenager, you know, it was my college sweetheart. And, you know, I thought I was in love and I find out, you know, that we're pregnant. And it's like, he's like, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I, I, you know, and I'm like, wow, well, I don't want to bring life into the world with someone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, and I grew up extremely pro-life, Christian, you know, it's an easy moral position to say until you're in that position. No one's pro-choice mm-hmm. until they really need to make that choice. Mm-hmm. And so we're criminalizing doctors. You yeah. know, like who's going to want to practice medicine here? Who's going to want to be a gynecologist here if you're going to face up to 15 years in jail? Mm-hmm. And they're literally trying to get violate HIPAA laws and try to get people's medical records who like left the state which Mm -hmm. that's like when you're the state's highest lawyer and presumably have a staff of educated people the fact that you thought that this might be legal or proper is should be troubling to everybody because like if you're willing to kind of fudge with the law to control people on that one like what else are you willing to do 
Yeah. Thankfully, it didn't work out, but who's to say what's next? The fact the that the intention was there. The yeah. intention was, oh, well, we criminalize doctors here, but we know that women will need to still have access to this. And here are the surrounding states that are seven, eight hours away. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that this person wanted to go hunt for women. Yeah. It's like... It makes me feel sick. <laughs> it really makes me feel sick. And I'll tell you, the vitriolic, violent rhetoric that I received online advocating for women's choice terrifies me. Mm. Like, it's really scary because people who are for criminalizing doctors have had to paint a picture of what abortion is and equate it with murder. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's yeah. not taking a pill three weeks after conception and emptying the contents of your uterus is not the same thing as killing a born human being. Right. But they have made that equal. So me advocating for women, just even to have access to the medical abortion. Mm-hmm. Let's say that I just like got in there by the grace of God, go I, and I just try to advocate for the pill mm-hmm. to come back, you know, mm-hmm. which still, you know, we still need to have the surgical abortion option because things happen in pregnancy that oh, yeah. require that. Women that have miscarriages have to have abortions. Otherwise, they could go septic and die. Yeah. You know, if you have a pregnancy that's failed, it has to be taken out of your body or you will go toxic. Mm-hmm. So abortion is literally medically necessary. And our law is written in such a way that doctors can only perform an abortion to save the life of the woman. And people have raised the issue, well, what point does the woman's life need saving? Do I have to wait a week before she's just about to go septic? Wait until she codes or something? Yeah. Does she have to be about to be bleeding out? Like, at what point, if she has stage two cancer, do we need to wait for her to have stage three cancer to say? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's too complicated for us to be getting into conversations Mm -hmm. about well, in this circumstance or with this exception, what are we going to have? Abortion courts? You know, they asked me on the WDSU interview, like, how do you feel about exceptions? I'm like, I think it's baloney mm. that we're talking about exceptions. Mm. The issue is that this is my body and you cannot tell me I have to give birth to my rapist mm. baby. Mm. You know? What's the feeling in your district on some of these? Kind? I'm sure there's a range of feelings, but, you know, I'm sure you've talked to women in particular on you know, both Republicans, Democrats, independents. I have heard, I have had women call me and tell me stories that they've never told anyone. They were like, please don't tell anyone in my family. You've known me for this long, but this is my abortion story. You know, I have had women call me and thank me for sharing my abortion story, for taking away the stigma and the shame of just being like, you know what, this happens. One in four women are either sexually assaulted or they have an abortion. You know, like this is the reality of um, being a woman in this stage of America where it's so hard to have a family and access to contraception is, is expensive, you know, and things happen. You know, you can buckle up every time you drive, but you can still get into a life-altering accident. Yeah, People true. do use precautions, but it's so interesting that... In the debate about abortion, people become fixated and obsessed with the personal sexual choices of the woman, Mm. but they're not fixated and obsessed with the lack of care on the part of the state for the child. Mm. It's so easy to be like, well, she shouldn't have laid down. She shouldn't have opened her legs. Or the responsibility of the man, right? Oh, yeah. We don't don't even, we're not even near ready to talk about that, you know? I mean, if we're just going to be blunt about it, like, the man is the most aware of when this 
moment moment might happen mm -hmm. and well maybe we do a, a pullout law yeah <laughs> you fail <laughs> failure to pull out 10 years in prison yeah. <laughs> absolutely uh, no i'm but, just kidding but, yeah. no. but um, just to let them feel what it feels like to have someone criminalize your body mm -hmm. you know it's it's crazy because she went my opposition went to this forum and she said well I can never apologize for being pro-life. And it's like, no one is asking you to personally apologize for the moral preference that if you were ever pregnant in an unintended pregnancy, or if you were ever raped, or if you were ever poor and pregnant, and you thought to yourself, oh, this is going to be very hard, but I'll do it anyway because my religion and my morality tells me I can't have an abortion. No one's asking you to apologize for the choices that you're making for yourself. I'm asking you to recognize that criminalizing doctors is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not about a, an apology for a moral preference. You have made your moral preference a law that reduces women's access to pregnancy care and reduces women's access to the right to decide not to become a parent because mm -hmm. abortion is when a woman says I'm pregnant, but I can't because yeah. if she could, she would, right? If the woman could, the woman would, but when she's saying she's, she can't, she means that she really can't. Yeah. And for the state to say, that's just too damn bad. You're going to have to, that is something that you should apologize mm -hmm. for. Yeah. And I, I think it, it brings up, you know, a really important um, sort of like democracy question of, you know, for instance, a representative, you know, do you represent just the people who voted for you? Do you represent just the people who agree with you? Do you try to represent everybody even when they have conflicting sort of issues? And on this issue, I mean, at least my take, uh, you probably agree, is like, look, if you don't want you to have an abortion, you can choose to do that. If you want to have an abortion, you can choose to do that. But like, let's taking, you know, abortion off the table for the moment, but just thinking about trying to represent people's different, sometimes conflicting values. Um, you know, is there any experience or thoughts that you have about how you would go about doing that as elected representative from Senate District 12? Well, I, rep I recognize that we are a district of many religions, of many genders, of many lifestyle choices. And she put out this mailer where she said, you know, her core values are, you know, the Bible, traditional families. And it's like, okay. So you're not going to represent Jewish people, Buddhist people, agnostic people, atheist people. You're not going to represent people, you know, who believe that God is different than what you believe God is. I mean, that should be the number one thing we as Americans should be able to be like, you know what? I don't have the right to tell you who to call God. And you don't have the right to tell me who to call God. You know, when to become a parent who to make love to and who to pray to are the three most private decisions a human being can make. That is like as personal as it gets. And for someone to basically say that this is my philosophy, this is my ideology, it's better than yours, it's superior to yours, and if you disagree with it, I cannot represent your interests. You know, I mean, the amount of time that she spent on LGBTQ bullying bills, it's like you have gay people that you represent. You know, there are kids that are gay that go to our schools. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they've always existed. Yeah, I they've think James Madison called that the tyranny of the majority in the Federalist Papers. 
and to be mindful of minority rights are not just about we say minority and we often mean black and Latino and, and complexion and, and our our, melanin levels. Right. But minority is also minority views, minority politics. They were thinking in terms of like amongst white men, minority views and trying to protect the minority view of white men, property owners. Right. Um, but I really appreciate what you're saying about, you know, respecting that there's so there's such diversity and, and, and for instance, there's people that work at the paper mill. There's people that want to shut down the paper mill, right? How do you, as a leader, bring people together um, and try to work this out. Well, the paper mill needs to clean up their freaking operation. And mm-hmm. honestly, the paper mill needs to pay for that high school to go somewhere else. Because mm-hmm. if you've ever gone to a football game in Bogalusa, you are on toxic soil. If you think Gordon Plaza is toxic, the water retention pond for this paper mill, or 30% of the exhaust, is a verified carcinogen. The wash that they do of those towers, the water that they use to clean their facilities, it sits in a retention pond that I, as a very crappy athletic you know, model, I could throw a ball into that pond. And we have majority black children playing games and exercising and, you know, breathing in this air. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know where... The, mo- the movement is to, to just move these schools a little bit further away, mm. you know, from this place. This is this is not the paper mill of our grandfathers, which was segregated. Okay, <laughs> you know, this well, is. Well, they tried to unionize, right? The police came in and shot the. Everybody black, go watch Deacons for Defense. Black and white <laughs> union leaders, right? They tried to have a biracial union. I think it was like 1919 or somewhere around there, and there's a bloody Bogalusa. Yeah, well, that yeah. was another thing. I mean, I was thinking of Deacons for Defense when they integrated the school and black. Bishops had a standoff with unhooded clans members that were a part of the police force that were blocking the entrance mm-hmm. of the very school that now is a majority black sitting at the foothills of this paper mill. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, close it, leave it, leave it open, you know, for the 600, 400 jobs it provides or close it, you know, so that people are not dissuaded from living here because they want to live longer. Yeah. I don't have the answer to that question. I do know that the kids that go to school there deserve to go to a school where they can breathe clean air and have their athletic practices on clean soil. Mm-hmm. And we got to get some soil samples out there like mm-hmm. ASAP to figure out what's going on because guarantee you there's something in the water, there's something in the air, there's something in the soil because people in Bogalusa as soon as they retire, they seem to have cancer. And that's a problem. And we definitely can't get answers if we're not asking the right questions. Um, Britt, Gandalfi, Senate District 12, I know we covered a lot of ground. We We got into a lot of cool stuff. I'm glad to get a chance to kind of hear how you think and and the passion is really evident. Is there something that we didn't cover or something you want to share with folks? Um, If not, maybe just some closing thoughts hassle everybody to vote hassle everyone to vote everyone you know has to vote the voter turnout is really scary this governor's election we could literally be moving into i mean a borderline fascist regime if jeff landry wins this sean wilson is our man to rally behind and we have a really strong democratic slate 
you know, statewide um, run for office. If you're a young person and you've ever thought to yourself, man, I'd like to run, you're qualified, you're good, read the Constitution. I only needed to be 18 years old and to have lived in my district for two years to be qualified to be a senator by the Louisiana Constitution. So if you are interested in running for public office, go find out what the qualifications are because you don't need a degree. You don't need to have this fancy background. You don't need a lifetime of public service. Our American Republic works by having everyday people who understand the realities of what it's like to be an everyday person struggling to make it in America. Those are the people that have to be making the decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not the people that come from trust funds and wealthy families. It's the people that have been on the front lines of trying to survive. If we do not have a movement of everyday Americans going into public office, we're going to have public officials completely detached from the reality of what it's like to try to make it in America right now. So, you know, vote, but run, like run, you know, don't, don't question yourself because believe me, the majority of the people in power right now, they didn't question themselves and maybe they should have. So, (laughs) well, you know, Britt Gandolfi, uh, you know, spoken like a great mom, a great role model, and a great candidate. Thanks for coming in. Keep your Gandalf wizard alive. And uh, and good luck this weekend. Thank you. All Thank right. you for all y'all do. All right. We'll best. talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.